The word is average. I'm not sure any of us grow up wanting to be average. We try to avoid the areas in life where we're average. But there are just parts of us that are just average. And for me, it's my height. According to the National Center for Health Stats, the average American male is 5'9", which puts me smack dab in the middle of average. And so when I was a little kid, kind of seeing my parents doing the math, I knew, okay, this, this may not turn out very well for me. I may be fairly average, which meant that it was a really significant day when I became taller than my mom. This is a picture from the day I got married. And I, got, I was so excited the day I became taller than my mom, and my mom said, son, I'm 5'2". It is not much of an accomplishment. <laughs> But every young boy, it's a big deal when he becomes taller than his mom. And so there was a certain day somewhere in there that I was feeling, I don't know, a little proud, uh, a little bit headstrong. And so I made a really bad decision. I walked past my mom and I thumped her on the head. Yeah, if you're looking for adjectives, dumb, stupid, short-sighted, all of those would be good examples. Um, And so before I could get outside of my mom's reach, though, she thumped me right back on the head. And she looked at me after I spun around shocked, and she said, son, channeling the words of a famous comedian, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. And ever since that day, I have been a little bit terrified of that short woman. Um... Well, then, I, uh, then I, I met my wife, who is on the opposite side. So my wife is 5'11", flat-footed. She played college basketball, and she loves to wear heels and boots with heels. So pretty much the whole time we were dating, she was six inches taller than me. And, uh, and I can remember one day we were walking down the, the sidewalk somewhere to, to an event. She was dressed up. She had heels on. She put her arm around my shoulder. I could, okay, I, I draw the line right there, okay? I... <laughs> I, 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 am, I am not insecure, but that's pushing it a little bit. And um, I can remember she asked me all these questions. She's like, hey, what would you do if I put on weight? Or what would you do if, um, how would you feel if I made more money than you your whole life? Or how would you feel the fact that I'm taller than you? And I'm like, we're not even dating yet, you know? Like, these are really hard questions. And now she's a prosecutor, which means if we ever get in a fight, I'm the one going to jail. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm, ta- I'm afraid of this woman who's taller than me too. And I think that there's a, a good thing uh, when we have a healthy respect for the women in our life. You know, Jesus, interestingly, uh, had profound respect for women. One of the most overlooked passages, I think, in the life of Jesus is the moment when he's hanging on the cross, overwhelmed with pain, and he looks down and he sees his mom. And he looks to one of his closest disciples and he says, son, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. And he remembered his mother that day. And that was a profound thing because in the day of Jesus, if you don't know the history, women were absolutely on the margins. Women couldn't uh, own property. Uh, Women's uh, testimony was not held up in court unless it was verified by a man. So if a woman was being abused by her husband, it had to be verified by a man. Well, that man's never going to verify that testimony. Women couldn't file for divorce. Uh, Women were completely and totally exposed in this culture, which is why the things that Jesus does to honor women are so significant. And even this weekend, we stumbled on a story here at Cornerstone about somebody who we think is worthy of some honor. This weekend, there's a, a person in our church who graduated from college Uh, after dropping out of high school to become a teenage mom, 
overcoming the adversity to go back and get her GED. Spending years studying, going to school, and this weekend she graduated summa cum laude from Northern Arizona University. I want to invite Benny Garcia, wherever you are in the room or the building. So you graduated yesterday, summa cum laude. Yes! Along with a lot of awesome people. Yeah, from Northern Arizona University, and it's been a long road. And there was an article that was written about you by, by NAU. Yeah. So we read it, and so we decided to bring you... Jamie's got a little something for you this morning. So... So we, we thought you might cry, so you have half an hour to recover before you have to sing again. So <laughs> we're going to give Benny a round of applause. You know, we've been in a series for the last few weeks called Not Like Me. And we've been looking at people who were on the margins of society who were so unlike Jesus, yet they liked Jesus so much. And they had a sense that he liked them too. And over the last few weeks, we looked at uh, people who were marginalized because of their notorious sin, or their past, or their gender, or their race, or their job. And what we've said is that as we look at the life of Jesus and we see how he loved people and thought about people and served people, we gain insight about how we can love the people in our life who aren't like us, how we can serve them and how we can think about them. And today, as you might guess, we're going to talk about women. And I want to reiterate the message of that video that we just showed. We recognize that Mother's Day is not one experience. It is many. And as as much as this holiday has become commercialized and celebrated just one version of Mother's Day, many of you here today are celebrating a variety of experiences. The book of Romans, chapter 12, calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so if today is a day of celebration for you, we hope you can rejoice today, and we hope you are celebrated because you're worthy of it. And if today is a really hard day and you almost didn't come today, or if you're watching online because you just couldn't come to the building, we want you to know today that we're with you, and that we're grieving with you, and we're celebrating with you, and more importantly than that, God is present with you wherever you are this Mother's Day. So today I have one central idea I want to drive home to you this morning, and that's this. That the way that Jesus interacted with women ought to inform the way we interact with everyone. The way Jesus interacted with women in the New Testament ought to inform the way that we interact with everyone. And today I want to share with you what I think are three insights that we get from watching Jesus interact with women And the first insight comes from the book of Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 7. We're going to be in Luke today for all three of our insights. The first one comes from Luke 7, 36 to 50. It is a bit of a a longer text, um, but we want to honor God's word this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me and follow along as we read our first text today. Stand if you're able. Beginning in verse 36, this is what it says. One of the Pharisees, which is a religious leader, asked Jesus to eat with him. And so he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus said to the Pharisee, the man, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was a day's wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee answered, the one I suppose for whom he collected the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman right here? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the moment I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God, we pray this morning that you'd meet us wherever we are. And through your word, you'd speak to us in a way that not only changes our experience of Mother's Day this day, but changes the way we go out and interact with every person we meet. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The first insight I want to share with you this morning is this, that loving people means that we give away what we have received. Loving people means that we give away what we have received. Jesus goes to the house of a a well-known Pharisee, a man named Simon. He's invited there for a meal, and they're all reclining at the table. And that day, they didn't sit on chairs. They had a low table, and you'd sit on cushions. And they're all sitting there, and it says that a woman of the city heard that Jesus was there eating And so she came into the house and standing behind him because his feet would have been behind him as he reclined, she begins to weep and she wets his feet with her tears. Says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, not an inexpensive thing. And after wiping his feet with her hair from the moisture of her tears, she breaks the jar and she allows the oil to come off and perfume his feet. See, in this day, this woman, who likely was a prostitute currently or previously, someone of Jesus' stature as a a rabbi would not be seen with someone like that, much less allow someone to touch him like that. And so everyone at the table begins saying, do you realize who this woman is? Do you realize who this person is? Do you realize what her past includes? And, uh, And it doesn't ever tell us what the woman says. But I have to believe that that woman is like every woman in this room, she doesn't need to be reminded of her flaws. I have yet to meet a woman who, when told one of her flaws, is shocked. Most women know. And if you don't know, then the trifecta that I call Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest remind you of your flaws every day. Because in all those places, women are shamed for things they are and things they're not. 
Shamed if you breastfeed and shamed if you don't. Shamed if you work outside of the home or shamed if you don't. Shamed for the things you do and then shamed for the things you don't do. And this woman, while she's doing all of this, is hearing these men talk about her and all of her flaws. And finally, Jesus turns and he says, let's talk about you for a second, not this woman. He said, I came in and and you did nothing about my feet. You see, in this day, everybody wore sandals. So your feet were dirty and often you would come into a home for a, a formal meal like this and someone would wash your feet, typically a servant. And so she comes in and she, she kisses his feet. She washes his feet. She anoints his feet. Let's turn this guy off today. See if I can operate a TV today. There we go. And what I find so fascinating about this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees and this woman is that this woman is there because somewhere along the way she heard something about Jesus and she heard he was near and she had to come near him. We don't know her story, but it's likely this wasn't her first encounter with Jesus. And she comes because of what she's seen and because of what she's heard. And Jesus says that the reason that she's there with such extravagant love is because she realizes how much she's been forgiven for. He says, he who's been forgiven little loves little. And the opposite is true. He who is forgiven much loves much. It's this reminder that our greatest gifts to others are what we've received from God. This woman has received love from Jesus, and so she's returning it to Jesus. She's received forgiveness from Jesus, so she's returning it to Jesus. The things that she's heard from Jesus, she's putting into practice. Today, across the United States, $25 billion will be spent on Mother's Day. $25 billion. The average American will spend about $193. I'm not here to talk consumerism with you or economics. But what I am here to tell you is that the greatest gifts that you're going to give today, whether it's to your mom or not, are not things you buy in a store. They're the things that you've received from God. Because you and me both have people in our life that are hard to love. Part of your struggle for Mother's Day may be that your mom is really hard to love. Part of your struggle, Mother's Day, maybe your kids are hard to love. And you don't just need your love to give them. You need the love you've received from God to give them because your love's not enough. And if we're going to love people like Jesus, what it means is that we give out of what we've received, not just out of our own resources. And one of the hard things about Mother's Day is it brings up all the tension in our relationships and in our families. It brings up all the things that are unresolved. It brings up something like forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is a gift that we can only give to the degree that we've received it. This is what Jesus is saying, is that he who forgives little loves little. He who's been forgiven little loves little. He who's been forgiven much and realizes it, he gives a lot of forgiveness away. And there's actually now, there wasn't in the day of Jesus, but there is now scientific research which backs up the fact that when a person is reminded of all of the forgiveness they've been given, they actually then go out and forgive more. 
There's a scientific correlation between receiving forgiveness or remembering the forgiveness you've received and then going out and forgiving those you need to forgive. See, if we're going to love people who aren't like us, we need a love from somewhere else. We need to recognize all of the ways and the places that God has loved and forgiven us. All the places that we've received his grace, all of the places we've received his love. Which is why for me this series is kind of going an interesting direction. This series is going a direction I didn't plan on it going. And I've learned something along the way. That before we can relate to people who aren't like us, we need to change the way we see ourselves. Because the way you treat others is a reflection of what you believe about yourself. You ever thought about that? Somebody who sees themselves as worthy of contempt and shame goes out and treats people with contempt and shame. People who feel like they're unworthy of love treat other people as if they're unworthy of love. There's a connection. Let me say it this way. The moment you lose sight of the grace you've been offered from God is the moment you stop loving people like Jesus. Because until you come to recognize all of the ways that you didn't deserve God's love, you didn't deserve his grace, you didn't deserve his mercy, you didn't deserve his forgiveness, when you lose sight of that, you begin to think that somehow you earned it or you were entitled to it. And then you treat other people as if somehow they have to earn your love or earn your grace or earn your forgiveness. The moment you lose sight of the fact that you didn't earn it is the moment you'll stop giving it freely like Jesus did. This is why Jesus' pattern of love is so convicting for us. Because we view love as a transaction, a tit-for-tat thing. Whereas he gives it liberally and unjudiciously. He gives it unconditionally. And if I say, well, love like Jesus, well, does that mean I have to love people who don't earn it? Uh Uh-huh. Does that mean I have to love people who don't deserve it? Uh Uh-huh. Because guess what? The only reason you're loved by God is you were loved when you didn't earn it or deserve it. And the minute you lose sight of that, it will transform your relationships for the negative. That's the first insight. Number two, thinking like Jesus means that we see people through a resurrection filter. Thinking like Jesus means we see people through a resurrection filter. One of the questions I asked myself a while back was this question. How did Jesus have money? You ever wondered that question? Like he never works. His family wasn't ridiculously wealthy. There were no ATMs. There was no welfare. How did he have money? Well, years ago, I stumbled on a passage that tells us, and it's right after the one we just read in the beginning of Luke 8. In Luke 8, 1, it says this. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were, and these are his disciples. And it says, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. The reason Jesus had money 
is there was a group of women who were traveling with him who gave it to him. Jesus was dependent on women to have his needs provided for. Now, in that day, that was entirely shameful. If you were dependent on a woman to survive, that wasn't something worthy of being proud of. Fast forward 2,000 years, and and I've experienced this. I I interviewed for a church once, and they wanted to know when my wife would stop working. And I said, well, if she stopped working, we wouldn't have enough money to live on. So you want to pay me more, and we can talk about that, but until you do that... (laughs) And it got real awkward and uncomfortable because I think they felt like it was shameful that she was the main breadwinner in our family. Well, if that's possible in the 2010s, how much... more powerful would that be in the first century for Jesus to be dependent upon the generosity of these women? The reason he can go out and heal and teach and minister is because these women are providing for his needs. Let's talk about them. One of them's name is Mary Magdalene. And Mary had been healed of seven demon spirits that had been possessing her. Some people have said over the years that she was a prostitute and there's no, there's no evidence to, to, to corroborate that. But she was giving Jesus out of her own resources, out of the gratitude for the healing that he brought in her life. There's another woman named Joanna who's giving him money. And then there's a third woman. Her name is Susanna. And, and one of these women is, is interestingly connected to this guy, a guy named Herod who is one of the mortal enemies of Jesus. He wants Jesus dead. He's already beheaded Jesus' brother, or his, his cousin, John the Baptist. And Herod is a very wealthy man. He's a king. And so he has all of his money, and he gives it to his household manager, a man named Chusa, who then gives his wife some of his money, who, the gall of her, goes out and gives it to Jesus. So indirectly, Herod is funding the ministry of Jesus. It's this awesome moment of divine irony. You're trying to kill him, but you're funding his ministry. And it seems that Jesus had no problem with any of this. No problem with any of it. You see, when I see people through the filter Jesus used, I think more like him. And his filter was not the filter that he was born into or that his father taught him or that his father's friends taught him. It was the filter that his heavenly father gave him. And when he saw people, he didn't see them in the categories of his day. He saw them through what I call a resurrection filter. Harv, can I borrow your glasses for a second? I forgot mine backstage. So um, these are Harv's glasses. They enable him to see. I, I don't use glasses except for when I, I'm on a computer and I have glasses that are called blue light blockers. And they, they block the blue light so that my eyes aren't tired at the end of the day. So when I put them on, and this is going to be real weird to see you all with Harv's glasses. But, but when I put them on, it filters out this harmful light and enables me to see more clearly. Harv, here you go. That way you can follow along. See, in the same way that I put on a filter through my eyes, I want to encourage you to begin seeing people through Jesus' filter. And it's a four-part filter I call the resurrection filter. Here's what it is. Jesus saw every person that he met as someone who was created in the image of God. Every single person he met was somebody who was created in the image of God. Did you know that you've never met a person who wasn't created in the image of God? Number two, every single person Jesus met is a person for whom he was going to die. 
You've never met a person who wasn't on the mind of Jesus when he was dying on the cross. Number three, every single person is someone who is deeply loved by God. He saw every single person as someone who was deeply loved by his heavenly father. And then number four, every single person he saw was a potential new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And here's my question for you. Do you see everyone you meet through this filter? I don't. I see people through the filter of labels, of um, limits, of their worst moments, of uh, socially formed categories, the things that my family taught me or that my friends taught me or that my church taught me that don't align with this. That's what enables me to categorize and cast people aside. It's what enables me to say negative things about people that demeans them. Because if I saw every person that I met as someone who was created in the image of God, someone for whom Jesus died, someone who's deeply loved by God and a potential new creation, then I could never demean, cast aside, throw out, or undignify. See, I think the challenge is is beginning to think like Jesus means we see people through the filter that he did and recognize that they are capable of experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus and being entirely different than the person we see today. And we tend to see people based upon their past, whereas Jesus tends to see people based upon their potential in light of what he's done for them. Third insight. Serving Jesus, serving like Jesus means we carry news of hope. Serving like Jesus means we carry with us news of hope. You know, today was three weeks removed from Easter. I know it seems like a lifetime ago. But three weeks ago, we gathered in this room, we celebrated Easter. And, and Jesus is just as resurrected today as he was on that day. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And when you read the story of the resurrection of Jesus, what you see is the primary and prominent role that women play in it. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. It says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that would be the women, went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? They said, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise... And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, the 11 disciples, and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene, who we met before, 
Joanna, who we met before, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. This is the reason why on Easter Sunday we had two women announce, He is risen. Because the first evangelists were women. Which doesn't make a big deal to a lot of you because you're living in 2019. But in the day of Jesus, women, if they testified in court, would not even have been believed. So why on earth did Jesus pick women to be the ones who announced that he was resurrected? Because he saw something that no one else saw. He saw people through a filter that no one else used. And while they weren't going there to expect a resurrection, they were going there to prepare the body, they were paying attention in a way that no one else was. The disciples weren't paying attention to the tomb, but the women were. And it's so interesting that in an oppressively patriarchal world, Jesus was pro-women. And this is why I find it such a tragedy that 2,000 years later, the church is often known as an unsafe place for women or a place that is anti-women. We just don't get that opportunity if we take this book seriously. We can argue all we want about the passages in the New Testament about, about what gender roles are in church leadership, and we should have those arguments, and our denomination has had those arguments and come to some answers. But the day in which the people of Jesus are viewed as anti-women is a day that we've lost the plot. Because we don't live in an oppressively patriarchal world like he did. And if he was pro-women in that world, by God, we should be pro-women in ours. And what's so interesting is the response the women get in Luke 24, 11. It says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So if you're a woman today and you're not believed, just it was the same problem at the tomb. A few years ago, I, uh, I stumbled on a quote, and it helped me give words to the struggle that I've had, because I stand up here and I, I preach to you every week as a very imperfect person. And nearly every time I prepare a sermon, I'm reminded of some area in my life that I'm imperfect. And often those happen in my family, they happen in my marriage. And, and I'll tell you that when, when I screw up and I have to apologize to my wife, she appreciates hearing the words, I'm sorry, or I made a mistake, or this is what I did wrong. But what she's really looking for is not words. She's looking for a change in action. And Ralph Waldo Emerson years ago said, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And... and and I just think that, that our calling as followers of Jesus is to be people who are, are people who bring hope wherever we go. The, the people who were there at the tomb, these women, they brought the good news of hope to the disciples even when they weren't believed. And all throughout 2,000 years of church history, wherever the church went, the church brought hope to the people who were there in very pragmatic ways and in very eternal ways. And I just want to ask you a question. When you show up in a room, does hope show up? When you show up in an environment, does, does hope show up? Not just with your words, but with your actions. We live in a world where it is becoming increasingly easy to compartmentalize our lives. 
to have our life with this group and our life with this group and our life with this group, our life online and our life offline. And what that means is that in some places we shout and sing about the hope we have in Jesus. I heard you guys clapping and singing 30 minutes ago. But will that same hope be evident tomorrow in your Facebook feed? The post that you shared today on something from church will be followed up tomorrow with a message that lacks hope or lacks love about the people you disagree with politically. Because you know everybody sees all your same posts, right? They see the Bible verse about love and hope, and then they see the post that's the share of the critical, snarky, angry comment about about your political enemies. And they associate that with Jesus. And so I want to challenge you that as you serve people and carry a message of hope, don't compartmentalize. Because what you may be able to compartmentalize in you, the people are watching you don't compartmentalize. And what you do speaks so loudly that they cannot hear what you say. It isn't just enough to speak hope. We have to bring hope. Because the gifts we've received from God are gifts he's called us to then give to other people. And we've received a tremendous gift of hope that should transform the way we treat everyone around us. So before we go today, I want to give you a couple next steps in the back of your handout. There are blanks for you to fill in, and you may need some time to reflect on these. Here's the first one. I need to give blank what I've received from God, and I'd encourage you to put a person's name in that blank. Who needs the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness that you've received from God? Who, who needs that in your life? And it probably is somebody that you don't think has earned it, deserved it, or somebody that you want to give it to. But isn't that the essence of following Jesus? That we give mercy, love, and forgiveness to those who don't deserve it? Number two, when it comes to blank, my people filter needs to change. So what's your bias? What's the area where you struggle to see those people as people for whom Jesus died, whom he deeply loves, who were made in his image, and are potential new creations? Is it politics? Is it issues of sex or ethics or morality? Is it people who don't agree with you on your business or in your company? But where does your people filter need to change? And then number three, my actions are shouting blank to the world. And maybe this is a place to just go back online and, and just go through your, your recent social media posts. Or to ask the people who are close to you, hey, what, a, what kind of vibe have I been giving off lately? What kind of noise have my actions been shouting to the world? On Mother's Day, I wanted to remind you that the way that Jesus interacted with women ought to be the way we interact with everyone. And as, as we learn from him, he shows us how to love and think and serve people who are nothing like us with the love and mercy and grace he's given us. Before you give any gifts today, make sure you give the ones you've received from him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gifts you've given us that we neither earn nor deserve. We thank you for seeing us when we were far from you. 
and dying on the cross for us. We thank you for forgiving us our many sins. And we thank you for the mercy and grace that we received anew even this morning. God, it isn't just us who are undeserving of that. It's everybody we've met today. And God, we confess that that we've not given away what we've received. We've hoarded it for ourselves. We confess that we've not seen people as you see them. Therefore, we haven't treated them the way you want us to treat them. And God, we confess that we've compartmentalized, settled for speaking words of hope when our actions lacked it. And we thank you that you are a place for us to come and find rest. You're a place for us to come and find love and hope. But when we come to you, Jesus, we thank you that you don't let us stay comfortable. You show us the places where there are gaps in our lives and you show us the work that you want to do to make us more like your son, Jesus. So we pray this day that is filled with so many emotions that you would remind us how deeply loved we are. We may have grown up with a very imperfect earthly mother, but we've not been forsaken by our perfect heavenly father. We thank you for your love and your mercy that you don't delight in showing judgment, but you want to show us mercy. That you love us where we are, but you don't want to leave us there. You want to make us like your son. So we pray that we would meet you today where we are, that we'd experience your love and grace and mercy, and that from the abundance of what we've been given, we would give it away to others. In your name we pray. Amen.